Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brujic, and today I'm joined with Dr. Susan Gromacki, where we're going to be talking all about the lids on the OI show. Dr. Gromacki, uh, thank you for being here. Um, you know, I've always admired um, your work, your writing. I, I still remember the first time I met you. We were actually both going to the AOA conference, and it was in um, it was in Las Vegas that year. Um, I unfortunately was getting shuffled to the back of the plane, and you had a you had a first uh, class seat, but you were heavily entrenched in an article. And I saw you said, "Oh, yeah, hi, nice to see you." And then you were back right at it. So you've always been a worker. It's one of those things that I've really um, respected and appreciated about you. But for those who may not know you, Susan, uh, please give the audience an introduction, a little bit of a, a background on your um, practice setting and really where your focus and emphasis is. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be part of this uh, very impressive podcast. And Basically, I've been in practice for 27 years. I graduated from Notre Dame and then Ohio State. I also received a Master's of Science in Physiological Optics at Ohio State under the uh, direction of Joe Barr. I wrote over 200 pages for my master's thesis, and that was all on keratoconus. And that started my journey uh, with keratoconus, my 27-year journey with specialty contact lenses. And I did a VA residency for a year at the Columbus and Chillicothe VA hospitals, and then really have focused my passion and my career on cornea and contact lenses, specialty contact lenses, corneal disease, such as keratoconus, corneal dystrophies, you name it. Uh, fast forward 20 years, I found myself in a practice here in the DC area where we were performing corneal collagen crosslinking. We were the probably the first practice in the US to do it, and that was in the uh, mid 2000s. And so I've probably co-managed almost 1500 eyes after cross-linking, fitting them with lenses and even performing some of the pre and post-op stuff and really working with ophthalmology and fitting a lot of gas permeable contact lenses, which I think circling around brings me to the ptosis aspect of of eye care because we certainly know that gas permeable and even soft contact lens wear over the years can lead to a um, ptosis. Well, you know, the topic of discussion, the really the reason we wanted to bring you on here, we know you're so heavily entrenched in specialty lenses, with ocular surface disease, but certainly the discussion is incomplete unless we talk about eyelid lid positioning and in particular acquired ptosis. Tell us a little bit more about um, some of the things that you're working on currently, Susan. Sure. So I recently wrapped up participation in a group called the TOSIS Consensus Project. And that was born from the idea that we needed a consensus on the definition, education, and treatment of TOSIS. It was sort of brainstormed to be something akin to, to for TOSIS, what dues to was for dry eye. So it was really a pleasure, I mean, really uh, just an overwhelmingly positive experience working with some of the greats in our practice, in our profession, and ophthalmology on this. It started in May of 2020, and it just wrapped up in February of this year. And we have come up with a paper, which we've submitted for publication to a peer-reviewed journal. It's it's so interesting, Susan. You know, we take 
so many things for granted when, when we don't have options for treatment. Um, you know, when you're, you're talking about dry eye and, and you bring up the dues analogy, it's so interesting because, uh, again, it's, it's such a, we, we take it for granted. We, we, we attribute so many things to the aging eye and we realize that when we have appropriate treatments, we can influence these things in better ways and keep those ocular surfaces healthy. So, so give, us, give us kind of a summary or a few tidbits on really some of the key findings, in particular when you're talking about acquired ptosis and, and the differentiation between something that's urgent versus something that's, that's non-urgent. Absolutely. So I think the first consensus that we came up with was that eye doctors, both ODs and OMDs, may not be looking for ptosis. We may not include it as part of our regular workup. However, it's quite common. And when you do look for it, you find it. You find it on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in the ophthalmology practice that I was in, we had a cornea specialist who would literally write ptosis down on almost every patient. And I used to think, hmm, what's happening here? And then I talked to the oculoplastic specialist and he said, well, yeah, that's because they all have it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those patients are wearing specialty contact lenses, gas permeable lenses. But actually, one thing that's overlooked too is that years of soft contact lens wear as well can lead to aponeuroticosis. You know, soft contact lens wear, gravity, aging, even we, I'm sure we've all seen patients after cataract surgery or after a long surgery where the speculum is prying the eyelids open, the patient may have ptosis for a little bit after that. Chronic inflammation can cause just, you know, uh, a non-medical, no urgency required, but can cause ptosis, which can be bothersome to the patient. So really with this consensus project, we kind of defined ptosis. We talked about how to test for it in practice, and then also what we can do about it. And that includes what necessitates an urgent referral, whether it's to an oculoplastic surgeon or whether it's to the ER. And then if it's not something urgent, what can we as ODs do to help? And there's, there's some new things that we can do actually that have worked phenomenally in my practice. Yeah, well, that's, that's the interesting thing, Susan, right? Like, so when you think about ptosis, you're thinking about surgical versus non-surgical. And if the patient doesn't want to do surgery, you're thinking, all right, that's it. Um, you know, logically, you'd think just keep your hands away from your eyes. But there are new kind of options that have almost bridged this gap between either surgery or do nothing um, and essentially kind of tell the patient to keep their hands away from their eyes if they're eye rubbers or things like that, right? I mean, there's just advances that have occurred. Absolutely. There is a tremendous new FDA-approved eye drop um, called Upneak, oxymetazolone, 0.1%. And that has really been, you mentioned this great word, bridge is a great word, although it may be even more than that. It may be something that our patients can use, you know, once a day, once a week for the rest of their life and really um, avoid having any surgery of any kind. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. So I, I've, uh, I've already told my technicians, I say, if, if anybody asks about Upneak um, or, or the eyelid lifting, make sure you put it down at the beginning of uh, or, or in the notes, just so that I know to talk about it right when I walk into the exam room. Because ideally, I, I want them 
to experience it so that they can see what the pre and post pictures are. Essentially, we take slit lamp pictures of them. But um, they're also trained even now too, Susan, too. We take um, fundus photos on every patient that comes in for their exams. And there's a, the camera that we have will actually shadow at the bottom depending on what's blocking the light coming in from the top of the picture, which is usually um, somebody who does have a certain level of ptosis or blepharotosis. So it's, it's interesting. It's just opened our eyes to things. And every single time we see that, we'll dose the patient and we'll have them take fundus photos after so the patient can actually even see to the differences in the fundus photo appearances that are occurring pre and post dosing. But it, it has empowered us a little bit. I think we've always felt that it's either surgery or nothing. And, and now there's this, this other option. Um, are there any contraindications that you see, Susan? Like anything where you're like, this is not a good candidate for this because of X, Y, Z. Well, I mean, first you have to separate out the urgent referrals. I think that's extremely important. You know, you don't yeah. want to let something, you know, like a third nerve, nerve palsy, corner syndrome, yes. myasthenia gravis. You cannot yes. let those go yes. another day yes. if that's what it is. So obviously, you know, when you're thinking about ptosis, you want to first you want to know how long the patient has had it. You want to know if there's any pain associated with it. And then you want to check pupils and you want to check EOMs and always ask if the patient sees double. Because if you see the combination of ptosis with a pupillary abnormality or ptosis with an EOM or diplopia issue, that, that could be an urgent referral right there. If it's a ptosis, which is longstanding, if the patient is a GP lens wearer, for example, Yep. Um, then you can probably be assured that it's not pathological, doesn't require urgent referral, and then you can proceed from there. Yep. It's, um, it's interesting too, Susan. Sometimes the position of the eyelids can even trick us just a little bit too. We've had some recent uh, thyroid eye disease patients where when you look at them first, it actually looks like they have a mild ptosis on one eye when in actuality they have a proptotic eye and the other eye that's actually causing lid retraction. So sometimes I think just as important to identify the reason for the ptosis, it's also important to um, kind of pay attention to the fact that it may actually be a lid retraction as well too. So differentiating that, differentiating that I think is important as well too. Um, so Susan, any like kind of memorable cases where you're like, oh yeah, this, is, this was like a home run and this is where I identified this, ruled out anything kind of bad or urgent, um, and then gave this person some level of success with, with kind of the bridge or, or the, the drop as opposed to a surgical intervention? Oh, Mila, I've had dozens of them already. Uh, I started prescribing it back in September as part of the TOSIS consensus project. I had, I had early access to it while they were still making more. Um, it was FDA approved, but they, they wanted to make sure that they had enough so that everybody can prescribe it. So I was starting... Anybody and everybody that I either noted atosis on or that was complaining about it. And it's more the former than the latter. This is something that we talked about quite a bit on the project is how to communicate it with patients because it really is a sensitive issue. Yeah. And it depends on your personality, maybe your staff's personality, how you want to bring it up. And I really loved your idea of bringing them up after the fundus photos. We have the same thing in our practice. 
And sometimes that upper eyelid, which is actually in the lower part of the image, does obscure the fundus. The other time that I notice is a good time to bring it up is during slit lamp. If I'm trying to look at a contact lens fit or I'm looking at the, the retina and I really have to pull that upper eyelid out of the way, I say to them, you know, I didn't really have to do this as much last year. Have you noticed that your, your eyelid is, is down a little bit? And, and they'll say yes, but they may not bring it up as a chief complaint. But once you sort of very gently and discreetly mention it, they may just agree with you. And it's actually few and far between that don't want to try the solution. And I give them just a brief education on what to expect. The eye drop peaks at about two hours. It's a once a day drop. And then it's, it's like a curve, basically. Its effect peaks at about two hours and then it gradually dissipates so that about eight hours, your eyelids are back to their baseline. So the patient can use it, as I mentioned, just for special occasions. If they have a wedding coming up, if they have family pictures, they can use it to raise their eyelids or they can use it every day if that's what they want to do. And the studies that were done uh, for FDA approval did show that there was some cumulative effect. So using it every day for two weeks, you get a little more effect than if you just use it um, sporadically. So I tell the patients this. And with the initial kits that I was given, which are running out right now, we had a 15-day supply. So I encourage them to use it every day for two weeks, then come back for a follow-up. And basically, like yourself, I take photographs pre and post. But before I even let them try it, I actually take photographs at zero and then at 30 minutes after the drop the first day. I tell them, I don't want to keep you here for the full two hours We'll keep you here for 30 minutes. And at 30 minutes, you should see some effect. Mm -hmm. And almost every patient has decided to take it home. And of those patients, almost every patient has decided to go on with the prescription for it. So for my practice, a heavy contact lens practice, those patients have benefited greatly from it. Now, I will say if it's more of a dermatocolysis and you've got some heaviness or even some fat to the upper eyelids, it's probably not strong enough to completely raise up the eyelids because it's working on Mueller's muscle. So the sympathetic, um, so it's not working in the levator. It's not going to give you a huge raise. It's going to give you one, two millimeters. And for most of these types of patients, that's probably enough. It's uh, I'm glad you brought up that one, Susan, the dermatoclasis ones. I'm always a little bit more, um, cognizant about setting appropriate expectations because we've, we found the same thing as you. I mean, when you have a clear ptosis, th then it's, or a frank ptosis, then it's, then it's easy. It's very predictable. But with the dermatochalasis, they're a little less predictable because of all that um, extra fat over the lid. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and the, the pearls that you've given are unbelievable. I think it's, it's really amazing that optometry now has the opportunity um, and, and non-surgical eye care for that matter has just a new option um, to discuss and talk about this and really help patients with it. And Susan, I, I wish we had more time. Um, this has been a blast. We're definitely going to have you back. We want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. We, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your expertise. And thank you all for joining us on the show. Make sure to sub subscribe to Optometric Insights and the OI show. Susan, we appreciate you being here. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 